we have digitized every single thing that we possibly can. And we will continue to digitize as much as we can. That is just who we are. Why don't we digitize currencies? Think about it. The most important thing outside of our health and happiness that we all believe in is money. It is financial security. And that is not digitized today to the extent that it should be. Hello and welcome to PolyWeb. I'm your host, Sara Landi Tortoli, and my guest today is Sumit Ayuja, advisor, investor, former private leader at PayPal and AT&T, and most recently, former VP of product at Circle, the company that issued USDC stablecoin. With Sumit, we talk about decision-making for building great products and for startup investing, and the role of stable coins in the economy of the future. Sumit, you really have uh, an impressive uh, career track record. How would you describe uh, your experience working in major technologies company? Uh, especially in the fintech sector, for context, uh, you work at AT&T, PayPal, Circle. Mm-hmm. So all those companies are kind of representative of also the different phases of the internet, uh, right? right? So how would you describe uh, this entire journey? Yeah, thanks, Sarah, for having me here. It's definitely a, it's been an enjoyable journey. It kind of almost makes, mimics the phases of my own life. And it's not been linear. I think if I was to really describe my journey in the product world over the last 20 years, it's been in you know three different phases. Again, you know, like a web one, web two, web three. And uh, when I began my career, honestly, you know, like about 20 years ago, uh, you can imagine, you know, I was just out of school. We were just thinking about, you know, what is this ICQ messenger, these new chat things coming out. I had no idea. We were sharing laptops and computers with four other people. Nobody had their own devices. And I remember those days distinctly. That was a web one days when, you know, you had some of these big, bulky green screens that you had just no idea what they're doing. And you would hear about these companies called Ericsson and Cisco and Sun Microsystems. And I was literally beginning my career as an engineer back then. And then a few years later, you know, fast forward to the early 2000s, you have the Netscape and the Yahoo and the AOLs coming around. And this is when you could actually, you know, read and write into a certain framework, right? And PayPal actually was born at the same time in the late 90s, early 2000s. Uh, it's been around for quite some time. And then you fast forward more, then you have, you know, Facebook and the Amazons and the Netflix of the world's come around. And I think uh, that's when we began to get more comfortable with, you know, here's my data, you know, here's my preferences, here's a subscription, and you keep moving forward. And this, I would say, was also the time when the fintech started to emerge in like, you know, early 2000s to the mid 2000s, because you needed a way to monetize and you needed companies that can help you process payments that can actually drive the commerce activity of these, you know, quote-unquote Web2 companies. And that's when you had the fintech boom taking place, you know, like early 2000s, mid-2000s, and um, since then. So I, I do believe that fintechs was, fintech was a catalyst that really drove Web2 forward, especially when the mobile revolution took off in like the mid-2000s with the iPhone. So I was fortunate to see that trajectory in the 2000s onwards, You know, a funny story is when I was um, doing my MBA, I was a teaching assistant at USC in the marketing class for undergrads. And I kept seeing a lot of essays from undergrads coming around this thing called an iPod, an iPhone. I knew the iPhone, but I knew about these uh, devices coming to market. 
And I was like, what is this iPod thing, right? And this was like 2003, 2004. And um, the lesson here was you got to pay attention to what people are talking about. And uh, I didn't pay as much attention as I should have. But uh, that was a time when really you had all of these companies coming to light plus devices that were making it easier to access this web too in the palm of your hand. So that really took off. And then, you know, fast forward to post PayPal, you to come to like the 28, 2015, 2018, you know, the whole Bitcoin revolution was kind of kicking off. And I got exposed to the Web3 world back in 2018, 2019, when Facebook came up with Libra. I got working on some of that stuff back at PayPal. And eventually, you know, I got to Circle through somebody that I knew who used to work with me back at PayPal and is now at Circle. And that's when I really got a box office seat into what is happening in this big, bad world of crypto and Web3 and blockchain and so on. And, you know, in terms of how I would compare those phases, like Web1, Web2, Web3, again, you know, PayPal, you would call it a Web2 company. Circle, obviously, is, you know, like a Web3 company. I think there's a couple of things that you can differentiate these phases on. Number one is just the excitement level, right? If you think about what's happening in the industry right now with Web3 crypto, it is fascinating. It is exciting. It is mind-numbing, right? With Web2, that has a little bit more, it has dampened down a bit. So I saw those changes taking place when I was moving from PayPal to a circle, from a Web2 to a Web3 company. Is that level of excitement about the future. The second thing I think that's important, and I think it's more obvious, is you know, Web2 is mature. It's not a zero-to-one state anymore. Whereas Web3, you know, it's in a zero to one stage, product awareness, education across the markets, adoption, all those are lagging at this point in time. So you are seeing that change from the Web2 into the Web3 world where product market fit may not just be there for Web3, but it's happening as we speak. The technology obviously is more mature in the Web2 space. Web3 is literally building the ground up. Talent obviously is different. The skill set needed availability. And I think the last thing is, you know, between the web two and the web three world is just the the non-tech factors like regulation and the socioeconomic and political factors that are so different between web two and web three. So, you know, that's been the journey the last couple of years. And um, it certainly has been not for the faint of heart. No, absolutely. And one thing that comes to mind to me right now is that you switch career always, uh, you know, mm-hmm. like you went from one company to the other always at the right time. So how did you manage to time the market like that uh, to understand, you know, oh, this is going to be the next big thing? Like, did you have the source of information? Mm -hmm. Uh, I'm very curious what was your thought process Uh, because uh, to build a career, this is extremely important. Uh, This kind of sixth sense. It is. It is. Uh, I think it really is a sixth sense. It's something that's more implicit than explicit. Uh, I wish I had a crystal ball. And I, like I said, you know, careers are nonlinear. Everything I described to you was not always on the high, on the up. There were a lot of downs along the way as well. But I think the way I've tried to just construct my career has been to just be aware of what's going on. And my mindset is always open to seeing what's happening around me. So I don't like to pigeonhole myself into one particular domain or one particular industry. I'm a product guy, but I am not the one who's going to stay in one area forever. 
So I think it's just the curiosity index that I have that's really, really high that always keeps me wanting more, learn more, network more, understand more. And I think you have to really understand and be self-aware that if you hit the peak, when you feel you're being very successful, it is time to make a change, in my opinion. Because by that time, it's probably already too late to make more changes because you've already ridden the curve. So you need to be aware that, you know, when you hit the high, it's already too late. But I don't have a crystal ball. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, uh, I wonder because I was uh, going to ask you if I could borrow yours, but uh, but no, but it's a choice, right? Some some people instead choose to be very specialized, uh, you know, they, they take one vertical mm-hmm. and then they really specialize in that and they become kind of market experts, right? And then there are people that instead of choose right. to go broader, you know, I guess it's also like personality type or personal inclination. I it is. Know. It certainly is. Yeah. Yeah, but I, I definitely like to go broad. Yeah, but I want to go back one second to your journey, mm-hmm. you know, Web 1, Web 2, Web 3. And and specifically for Web 3, I'm curious to know what's your definition of Web 3? And most importantly, how mm-hmm. do you think it's going to evolve? Because Web 3, let's face it, used to be the cool kid on the block right? And then here comes AI and chat GPT and all of a sudden Web3 and the metaverse, who has heard of it anymore, you know, right? So what do you think it's going to be the evolution in this space? Yeah, that's a good question. And honestly, you know, you ask this to like 10 people down the road, you're going to get 10 different answers. But having seen the evolution in technology from one phase to the other and to the other, the web one, web two, web three, call it what you may, you know, the way I like to see it, it, it is evolution. And, you know, just that is human nature. That is the way this planet has evolved. Things will change. Things will evolve. So web three to me, and frankly, you know, I, I don't think we are in a fully web three world just yet. We will get there. We are probably somewhere like a web two dot X world. But to me, it is the next iteration of the internet and the ontologies as we know it. And it is also the next iteration of how we will interact with those technologies, right? I think it's important to understand that, you know, people use the word crypto, blockchain, metaverse, Web3, all in the same sentence, and it's it's not synonymous. They're not the same thing. It is um, really important to understand the differentiation between them. So Web3 to me is a core promise of how the internet is going to change. And the main core tenets, if you will, of uh, Web3 are decentralization. You know, there's the idea of uh, improved privacy and identity. Uh, there is the notion of owning what you create. There is the, uh, the idea of governance, of how it's uh, done for organizations. And there's also this openness, the open protocols. It's the open garden. It's not a walled garden. So I think if you think about the way the internet has evolved from web one to web two to web three, we are at a point right now where people want that flexibility. And and maybe these things also lead to the benefits of web three, the core tenets and the promise that web three it is. It really is. You know, it's, I don't want to be controlled by intermediaries anymore. There's this entire idea of, you know, DAOs, for example, governance can be in a truly democratic fashion, get there, get to a point where, I have voting powers and voting rights in, in a true democracy to run an organization. 
But most importantly, what I find in working in Web3 and with people in Web3, the, the mindset is very different. People are willing to just build collectively for the future. Web2 is mature, right? It is a business. Web3 is almost like a team effort that, hey, we need to really open the eyes of the world to raise this openness of the internet to the next level. So I see this, the promise of Web3, and I always say it's a promise of Web3. We're not fully there yet. Yeah. I Maybe like uh, for people who listen to this and are not uh, are really into Web3, etc., I like very much your definition that it's like a promise of an internet to be, which means that currently, you know, there are a lot of experiments going on and not all of them are successful. Absolutely. The building process is uh, most often messy, you know, comes with a lot of ups, ups and downs. And it's very reminiscent of uh, maybe the early days of, of the internet, uh, you know. So that's what comes to my mind. And I think, uh, you know, it's going to be more important as uh, the technology progress because if i think if on one side we have this tendency to decentralize on the other mm -hmm. we also see a tendency to centralize a lot and that happens uh, you know with the usage of data and ai because you cannot do all this type of intelligence if you don't have nice organized centralized data you know in one that place. is true uh but also for governments. Uh, and maybe we can touch on that uh, and continue mm -hmm. more the conversation later on. Because uh, yeah. that's definitely something that I want to ask uh, your opinion. Uh, but, but first, I think I want to ask you the most selfish questions of all. Please <laughs> do. And that is, uh, so in your career, you have touched many products, huh? Like not only you worked at a very high profile company, you also had product that a very high level of visibility inside the company. So I wanted to ask you, what is your approach to build great products? I wish I could tell you that there is one one size fits all framework that I can use in a large company with 200,000 employees to another company with 20,000 employees and use the same framework in a company that has, you know, 200 employees growing to like a thousand employees? The answer is no. It really, in my experience, this is just my view, the way you build products, the way you think about them strategically, it varies from company to company. It varies depending on the stage of growth that they're in. It varies on the markets that they play in and also the competitive structures in the landscape. So all of those things, right, they make a difference in choosing how you think strategically about building what you want to build. But I think it's I think it's fair to say that at a very broad level, for me personally, in my career, for the places where I have worked and for the products I have built, there are three or four things that I really think have helped me personally succeed to the level I have in thinking about strategy on products. And the one of them is it starts with you really, really do want, need to understand what's your core strategy for the company, not just a product strategy, but the overall business strategy for the company. And does it tie into your core competence, right? Many times you're going to find companies, big and small, deviate from that path. And sometimes it is necessary. You know, nothing is perfect in the business world. 
but you've got to be absolutely true top down bottom up that you're aligned to that one particular strategy or multiple strategies that you have uh, in place but no more than three four things it can't be i'm going to conquer the world and then some every single day it has to be a focused strategy that's well communicated so for me that is the starting point the second thing that has helped me in the products that i have built of strategic importance and like you said, Sarah, the things that have been very successful and visible, and this will sound cliched, but it really does start with rigorous customer discovery, with a really sound understanding and fundamental promise to the customer, right? The customer simplicity aspect. And I'll give you an example of this, maybe from my web one, web two, web three days to make it more real. You know, back at PayPal, for example, you know, the consumer side of the business is a is what's, it's a fuel for the merchants of the business, right? And the consumer side really rests on the P2P business that PayPal has, even today, uh, PayPal, Venmo, and so on. And, you know, I was one of the first few PMs on the P2P side, and we launched uh, several products. Uh, one of the things that we built was called PayPal.me. This is, you know, back in 2017, I think, somewhere there. Fantastic product, did really well. But what we found is that, 80% of the revenue was coming from a very, very small sub-segment of customers, the freelancers. And we had not necessarily designed the product to serve that particular community. We were thinking purely Sarah and Sumi, just the consumer. So the discovery element was lacking. The product was successful, but it became more strategic and successful once we realized that discovery is lacking and we had to do more. Uh, in the crypto space, obviously, you know, this is one thing that's really important for people in the Web3 space. In the crypto space is every single geography you go to, you will find very, very uh, what are called hyper-local use cases of crypto uh, and Web3 adoption. You just can't, it's not a single product that can be ruling across different geographies. Uh, adoption is different. Use cases are different. Regulatory climates are different. The ecosystem, the on-off ramps are different. So to be very strategic about a crypto product, you need to understand those nuances, right? So I think those are you know two good examples from my previous, previous exam, ex experience that really showcase the need for discovery before you go down that path. The team, that matters a lot. You know, who you pick, is it empowered? Do they need to, they need to understand, at least the ones I have built and led is, you know, failure is an option. You know, I always say that failure is an option, but stopping with failure is not, right? And I think product managers need to understand that you are going to fail, but you can't stop with that failure, right? Uh, so with that comes the adaptability. It's a humility. It's a resilience that you need as a PM to be able to build, 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 fail, fail, succeed, build, build, fail, fail, succeed, right? But the team has to be empowered to do that. Cross-functional leadership. You know, if you think you're going to build a product in your own little silos, Guess what? It ain't going to happen. So leadership as a cross-functional teammate is important. And the last thing I'll say that really matters in building strategic products is ecosystems. I, I can't think of any one big solid launch or successful product out there today that does not rely on its ecosystem, that does not contribute back to the ecosystem or take in learnings from the ecosystem. It could be the developers. It could be the regulators. It could be the distribution channels. Uh, you know, competitors or even the influencers, 
but you need to understand what makes the product successful. It's not just the product, it's the entire ecosystem behind it as well. So those are some of the things, you know, I feel have helped in my career personally to build successful products of strategic importance. Mm. I got a couple of follow-up here to ask you. <laughs> I mean, uh, the first one is actually mainly for uh, for people working in Web3. I think for them, this is going to be really key because you mentioned in your answer that you need to be focused, you need to dedicate time you know, for doing the proper discovery and really pick your priorities mm-hmm. and stick to that. Right. But how do you do that in Web3, for example? Because Web3 moves so much Mm -hmm. faster than Web2 does. So in Web2, you have this kind of stability, you know, that things change, but they still change uh, at a somewhat slower pace, quote unquote. Right, because if uh, you know Absolutely. you work uh, you work for YouTube and TikTok release uh, so there is a something that you know, uh, or or if you're doing AI, you know now everyone is in a rush. Uh, okay, but yeah, so not just actually not just for Web three. This also now works for Web two companies, right? Yeah, it is hard, but I think some of the things I mentioned earlier do still stand true. So one of the things I will say is you know in Web three. And I always tell my um, my teams that, you know, there is no rear view mirror in Web3, right? I can't look back and say, oh, we did this right or we did that wrong, right? There isn't much to look back at, unlike Web2, uh, Web1, the legacy industries and so on. So I think in, and this kind of goes also to lessons learned as a PM overall, because when I was in the Web2 space early on, it was the same situation, Right. It's, it's about not Web3. It's not about Web2. It's about anything that's emerging. You'll always have this issue. And I think it all starts with just the mindset that you're not going to hit it right the first time. You're not going to hit it right maybe on your own. So going back to what I said about the mindset that failure is an option, Again, I don't mean you fail every single time. <laughs> that won't go down so well. But failure is an option, right? But collective development, staying tight with your customers, staying in the process with your ecosystems can really truly accelerate what you want to build, why you want to build it, how you want to build it, how you want to launch, how do you iterate, right? And are you truly, truly, truly driving value to what the customer really wants? So I think those fundamentals about any phase of the web, WebX, let's call it just WebX, right? Mm-hmm. It happens to be Web3 right now. Those don't change. So if you think about Web3 specifically right now, what you'll find is there is a mindset in the community. It's a different breed of people, to be honest. It's a different breed of people who fundamentally believe that we want to build together. We want to build a better future together, right? And that may not necessarily exist at this point, in the Web2 space, because it is so mature, it's more life cycle mode. So my advice, if you will, for folks in the Web3 trying to build new products is, number one, be very open and aware that you will fail. But you need to be empowered enough in the right teams to be able to keep progressing, right? Progress over perfection is really my mantra, right? Second, ecosystems truly matter. 
And the last thing I would say is that, you know, you got to keep an eye on what is happening with competition. Because in this fast-moving space, the rules of the game change fairly often, right? How Web2 is quite structured, the rules are clear, regulations are clear, how people are conducting their business, the monetary the monetization models are clear, but things can be very different in Web3. So it would be very, very important for a product manager who owns a business, who owns a product and drives a business to know what is working externally as well. And take those best practices. If it's a business model, let's consider it. If it is tapping into a new customer segment that seems to be working better, let's take a look at it. If it is understanding regulations better and entering a market based on certain licenses and you know structures, you should consider it, right? Again, depending on what you're doing. So Web3 has its own special nuances, but at a very fundamental level, it is not different from what we went through when Web2 was new. Mm. Can I ask I hope you- that helps. Yeah, it does, yeah. Uh, but it raises more questions, of course. Can I ask, uh, how do you make those type of decisions? Like you were just mentioning right now, you know, a competitor does something and you say, okay, let's look at that. Mm-hmm. Maybe it's a new business model. Maybe it's a new user segment. Maybe it's a new market because regulation have changed. Okay. So let's assume you have like these option on options on the table. Do you have a specific decision-making framework that you consistently go back to like what's your process in evaluating opportunities as a product guy yeah and i think this is the hardest part of a pm's job is to really really make that determination of i have these you know eight ten different things that i could do should do maybe i don't want to maybe i do want to do them but what do i focus on and if you assume that most web3 companies are smaller right they are not massive trillion dollar companies they're mostly smaller companies so there are maybe i would say let's say six to eight different things that they could be considering but this goes back to what i said earlier where you cannot and most likely so smaller companies don't have the luxury hey today i want to build this next best payment stack using crypto rails oh my god but guess what somebody else is doing in web3 is really an immersive experience using the next set of hardware from from Meta, right? Now, all you could argue it's Web3 related and so on. So I think you have to really be very crisp in your thinking around what you can do, what you should do, and what really is your customer base looking for, right? Internal alignment. Again, I'm a big, big, big believer that in these phases of absolute crazy growth where things can derail very quickly, you need to be very, very communicative, over-communicate with leadership. Align, align, communicate, communicate, build, build, right? It's really important. So you will have to make certain decisions and you're not going to get them right all the time. You're not. So I think the prioritization based on your strategy, what customer value you want to drive, your core competence and your resource availability can make a big dent in deciding what you actually want to do to drive that focus. But again, you know, I often get corrected. Once you start talking to people, you realize that you might be missing something that has just happened, which is why as a product leader, for me, it's more important to hire people who I can listen to more than talk to more. Ah, 
okay. So maybe we get into that, huh? you know, uh, how do you make your hiring decisions? Because that's relevant, like, not just for private people, but also for, for founders, maybe, right? Uh, so do you have specific elements uh, that you look for when you make your hiring decisions? There are different ways of this. You know, there's obviously very scripted, very structured ways of hiring that we all have been seeing with, you know, the Googles of the world and the Facebooks of the world and, you know, Netflix of the world. There's that one path there. The second path, which I think is really important for hiring uh, to me, is directly coming from referrals, mm. right? So you could be obviously going down this path and absorbing all these incoming resumes and they're preparing this fang style preparation which is all great uh, or you could be really curating your own pipeline so for smaller companies specifically uh, they cannot afford to make wrong hires they cannot afford to experiment as much where in a big company you know you have more luxury of resources right so i would say that again speaking more with the web3 orientation and maybe um to some extent, everybody can benefit from this is um, as a product leader, you know, I'm always networking. I'm always networking. Either people are reaching out to me or I'm reaching out to people, right? Um, and I'm sure the same is true for most product leaders where they are getting hit with, you know, people requesting time, mentoring, coaching, uh, or any kind of interaction. So to me, I am passively always building this funnel um, and talking to people, candidates, or for myself, you know, where I would want to go to understand who really has done it in the past. I always say this, you know, when you look at somebody and you want to hire them, if I want to hire Sarah for my next product role, it is, can she do it? Should she do it? And will she do it? Right? Those are all three very different things as opposed to what you see on a resume. So building active pipelines passively, assessing people not just on, you know, critical thinking, problem solving, giving them, you know, quirky questions, all of that is awesome. But at the fundamental root of all of this is that, hey, can she really do the job? Should she do it? Is it really what she wants to do? And is she motivated to do it? Will she do it? So I look at all those aspects and I think in this day and age right now where everything is just so crazy, the two things I look for the most in a candidate, in addition to the whole, you know, analytical strength and vision and so on, is adaptability. Again, going back to what I said earlier, you're not going to get it right every single time. And PMs cannot be married to the solution. They need to be married to the problem statement, Right. And I think a lot of PMs make this mistake is where they get vetted to the solution. So I look for PMs who have that ability to attach themselves to the solution, uh, sorry, to the problem of the customer, but also detach themselves very quickly, if needed, from the solution so they can pivot. And the second thing is purely, like I said earlier, it is really having that customer mindset, customer-centric mindset. So those are some of the things I always look at in addition to the typical laundry list of things that you would find on any PM hiring website. Yeah, absolutely. It's true. And uh, I'm certainly guilty, especially at the beginning of my career, to be married to solutions, you know, and really it identifies mm -hmm. strongly with that. Uh, 
And I think that right. this is something that as a PM, you get better as you progress with your career and you switch products, maybe you switch company and you start to see, okay, I'm, my value, you know, comes from really solving the problem, not to deliver a specific kind of solution. And that's when, you know, things start uh, really changing, I think. They do. And I'll just say this, it's really important that you have the right leadership structure that nurtures this growth. And you have the right team that allows you to flourish with that kind of development. PMs don't grow to be great by magic, right? It takes the right environment as well. That's true. Absolutely. And and also learning from other other PMs, you know, peers, other leaders, etc. Mm-hmm. By example, that's also super important, I find. Uh, not just as a PM, I think, but every career. But True. I want to move for one second, you know, out of my selfish little garden of uh, the product <laughs> manager. Uh, because you're also... Uh, an angel investor and a startup advisor. So I wonder if you can share how did you start this journey? And also, mm-hmm. I think uh, we talk about decision making making before when we talk about product management. So which product to build? If you have like option A, B, C, you know, what what your what is your decision making process looking like? So I'm gonna ask you the same questions, uh, but this time related to startup investing. I mean, I'll say this for the folks who are considering angel investing. You know, the first investment is always the hardest. It feels like a gamble. You know, you're like, I'm doing this on faith and instinct and gut more so than pure logic, right? It feels a little weird. So if you go down this path, I can almost promise you, you will going to be hit with. Companies coming to you all the time. So it makes my job even harder to sift through all of these. So I think for me, you got to remember with angel investing, it is very early. You know, there may be no product. Maybe there's no customer. Maybe there's no product market fit. There's no revenue, right? So what are you really doing? Are you crazy? So there's a high risk involved. So for me, in these situations, what you're really doing is you're betting on the team first. Then you are on the product. So I got to have a very strong, unshakable belief and confidence in the team. And when my my partner and I invest, we always look for opportunities where you have co-founders. It is important for me to know that you're not just betting on one person who may have a siloed view, but you've got somebody else who can complement their strengths. Maybe somebody's fundamentally strong in product and tech, but you need somebody who can go out and raise funds. You need somebody out there who can go and talk to the customers and seal deals, right? One person, one man, one woman can't typically do it all. So it's a team that I scope really, really well. And one thing, just like in product management, where I said you don't get married to a solution, even in an early stage startup, what I look for is somebody or the co-founders that are not married to a solution, but they're really trying to solve a problem. I don't think there are many angel-funded companies that come out of the other end successful with the same idea that they had in the very first place, right? So you need teams that can pivot, that can adapt, that can understand the ecosystem to be able to move forward. So I look for that in the team. The second thing that's important is obviously just what's that 
problem statement, you know, what's the impact area, you know, what's the domain, what's the industry, what's the ecosystem, you know, have they focused in on the right problem or are they just casting a white net? So I like to get an understanding of what that space looks like. And if indeed there's a third thing is an opportunity in economics that are going to be favorable for that investment. I also like to look at who else is investing, who's on the cap table, who are the other advisors, what's the track record, right? So those things are important as well. And, and last but not the least, you know, as an angel investor, you know, typically the companies are very small. I like to see where I can actually add value other than just cutting a check, right? So if I can be an active investor, not just passive, it makes the opportunity for me even more sweeter. But again, it's, it's, it's something which you develop the appetite for and the gut for as you do more. Yeah, and it's a, it's a challenge, really. But you've worked at Sarkold, and uh, I got to ask you a question related to stable coins. Uh, <laughs> at this point Any of those, yeah i mean i gotta ask it right because you know stable coins are kind of uh, the fundamentals of crypto tradings i don't think uh, we will have the volume of tradings uh, even in a bear market let alone in a bull market uh, without mm-hmm. the presence of stable coins and also we've seen you know stable coins uh, the pegging circle included and on this is on one side and and mm-hmm. some you know are questioning if indeed the money are there right and let's not mention name tether right so some are questioning the the legitimacy and this is on one side on the other side you have governments instead that are more and more getting getting into cbdc or central banks' right. uh, digital currencies. And the Fed, you know, is experimenting right now with FedNow, which is the instant uh, payment method of the Federal Reserve. So I wonder what's your, your take on that? Yeah, certainly a complex space again. And you're right in describing the current ecosystem, the way it's been shaken up in the stablecoin space. So I... I agree with you. You know, there's obviously been a, ch- a change or, or rather a balance has kind of shifted between the two top tier US dollar based um, stable coins, circles, USDC, and then you have Tether. And the reasons for that, obviously, you know, there's the banking collapse that we've seen in the US has made a big, big dent in the depegging. And of course, what happened after that? And also, I think fundamentally, the appetite for risk. And the kinds of customer segments that adopt stable coins differ from one market to the other. So I think there are all of those factors that play into how prominent one stable coin is versus the other. But having said that, you know, it, it, it's, it, it's fascinating. And again, we'll, we'll get to CBDCs in just a moment. But if you talk about stable coins specifically, and again, just for the listeners, right, CBDCs, and stable coins. In this case, I'm talking about you know fiat-based stable coins like USDC and um, and others. Um, we know what happened with the collapse of Terra Luna and the algorithmic coins and the crypto coins. That's fallen out of favor. So I want to focus mostly on the fiat-based digital currencies and get to CBDC later. 
So I still believe that, you know, what's going on right now in the markets, despite the crypto winter, despite the banking collapse, despite the change in the power balance that has shifted a little bit more, the promise of stablecoins doesn't change. You know, we going back to web one and then web two and then web three, we have digitized every single thing that we possibly can. And we will continue to digitize as much as we can. That is just who we are. Why don't we digitize currencies? Think about it, right? The most important thing outside of our health and happiness that we all believe in is money. It is financial security. And that is not digitized today to the extent that it should be. And what is going to lead to that fundamentally to make things faster, cheaper, more secure and transparent are stable coins. So I'm a firm believer in the absolute, absolute power of digitizing and tokenizing currencies. So I think the, the debate is not in the utility of stablecoins. It is really around the management of the, the risk. It is around the transparency. It is around the different approach in different countries. It's a regulatory fragmentation that we have across the world. That's in question, right? In addition to other things, but it's not really the true utility just yet. I think stablecoins are yet to hit the full product market fit beyond crypto trading, like you said, Sarah. But th there's a few things that I think will continue to happen with stablecoins. Number one, a store of value. If you look at what's happening in Latin America and other places where you know, inflation can run anywhere from 40, 60, 80%, people want to live their lives with predictability. They cannot lean on the local currency. Stablecoins are a lifesaver for them. So I see that as a fundamental value to humanity in a way coming through digitization of currencies. What's going to happen or continue happening with stablecoins is crypto trading. Again, it's taken a big hit on the decentralized exchanges, on the centralized exchanges, but it has been resilient. And I think it will continue, although it's on a low right now. Uniswap, again, it's gone down, but it's being pretty resilient. DEXs have gone down. You will see a slowdown in enterprise adoption. So for example, treasury management or using crypto payments, uh, enterprises will be slower to adopt them, especially because of all the stuff that's going on around regulatory frameworks, the unclarity or the lack of clarity. And of course, it's, you know, things like depegging or how are the reserves managed. Those things need to be a little bit uh, on a stronger footing uh, for enterprises to get to a more higher adoption state of stablecoins, but it will happen. What I think will rise is cross-border movement uh, of money, cross-border money movement using stablecoins, uh, especially in the foreign exchange markets. And, you know, last but not the least, you know, my belief is that you will see certain markets, let's say Asia, adopt stablecoins a lot faster than you will see here in the U.S. or in North America. It's already happening. You know, you walk into certain places in Asia right now, people are using wallets quite easily with stablecoins to buy a cup of coffee and so on. Same thing in Latin America. So I think those things, what, what I call the coffee cup use case, will vary by market, but it will happen. CBDCs, as you asked, and as you rightly pointed out, there is obviously the whole government angle. So I think it's important to mention that, you know, CBDCs today, again, central-backed digital currencies, 
it's experiments right now, right? I think it's just the Bahamas, Jamaica, Nigeria, and maybe one or two com- uh, countries that have CBDCs live. But in India, South Africa, Sweden, China, other places, and a lot of other places, it's all an experiment right now, right? So fundamentally, they're very different. You know, who issues them? How are they legally managed, right? The platform that they're built on, are they actually truly open, right? Can they actually cross borders, right? Will I, as a consumer, want to be with Big Brother managing my money where they can see every transaction? Or do I want to live in a decentralized world where I own what I own and why I own it and what to do with it, right? So fundamentally, CBDCs are, are very different than stablecoins. The use cases are very different. So I think playing this forward, I, I don't know the answer to this, but I can say that they're on different tech stacks. Stablecoins are built on almost open source protocol, right? They're composable structures on permissionless blockchains. CBDCs are not. So you're talking about two different animals right here. So in this situation where the government controls a narrative to this and also can regulate digital currencies, you know, I think it's important for companies that are in the digital coin space to play a couple of roles. Number one, it is really to emphasize the need for the clarity, regulatory clarity, like you said. In Europe, it's a lot more. Uh, it is to emphasize the technological edge and the actual utility that open source protocols can drive as a complo- as, as opposed to closed ecosystems like a CBDC. Uh, so continue to show that utility. And I think this gets said often, and I think it's true. It is to really showcase that in, if we don't go down this path of fostering digital innovation in private enterprises through startups and so on, we will lose the technological edge, which we are especially in the U.S., to other places where Web3 is being more adopted and regulation is more friendly. So you're going to find this, you know, funky mix of CBDCs and stablecoins coexisting for some time till we get to a happy medium. But I do see a world in which both could exist for specific use cases. Yeah, like my sensation, like if I was a government official, like, why will I keep stable coins uh, when I have my own CBDCs, right? That, like, that's a competitor. You know what I mean? And I am the government. I can simply make you disappear, you know, like on some ground or the other. It's the power struggle right now. Yeah. Yeah. So that's that's exactly what it is, which needs to be seen how, yeah. how it plays out. Yeah. But, I mean, we don't have a crystal ball, so we shall see. We have reached the end of this uh, conversation. It has been a pleasure having you having you on the show. And I really want to thank you for your time and for uh, all your advices. No, thank you. My pleasure. And I want to thank you for really taking all of this information and getting it out into the ecosystem, which I think is really, really a good service to everybody. So thank you for what you do. Thanks. And for listeners... We'll see you in the next episode. Bye. That's all from today's episode. Thank you so much for watching or listening. If you find this episode valuable, you can subscribe to our YouTube channel or to the Polyweb podcast on Spotify, Apple, or your favorite podcast app. It would be fantastic if you could leave us a rating, a review, or a comment, as this really helps other listeners find the show. 
All the resources mentioned in this episode will be linked in the description and in the show notes. See you on the next episode. And if you cannot wait until next week, you can watch this episode right here that relates to some of the things that we talk about in this episode. Bye.